Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Turn with me, beloved, into, your, into Romans chapter 9 uh, with me, Romans chapter 9, as we uh, continue our series through uh, the book of Romans. If you are visiting with us uh, this morning, once again, I want to warmly welcome you, and uh, as I've said a couple of times in this section of Romans 9, as I've been preaching through Romans 9, this is my sixth sermon on uh, Romans 9, and uh, as I've said a couple of times uh, before, we are not trying to fulfill all stereotypes uh, as Presbyterians. Uh, In fact, I saw a funny uh, little uh, series, it's a little video series done by this man. I, I, I don't know where he's from or, or what church he's in, but he's a pastor. He does these funny videos, and he characterizes every denomination. And so every time a holiday comes around, he, he gives a perspective of that hol- holiday from all the different denominations. That's really funny. Uh, and then this one I saw yesterday, interestingly, uh, had uh, each denomination talking about uh, what it was going to do for their sermons uh, coming up. And of course, the Presbyterian, who was smoking a cigar uh, and had his bow tie on, the pastor, uh, said, well, we are in Romans chapter 9. And, uh, and then they shift over to the Baptist pastor, and he says, well, of course you are. And, uh, uh, and, and, and so it's just the stereotype is just here, all over this, this, this meeting. But, but as I've said in, in previous messages, we are in Romans 9 because prior to this, we were in Romans 8. Very good. Um, and before that, in Romans, math scholars here, math scholars, must have some Clemson grads here. This is great. And so we are doing as in the Reformed tradition, in the Protestant and Reformed tradition, since the days of the Reformation, walking through books of the Bible together as a congregation. Now, some of you will have come here uh, for the very first time. And you're thinking, oh, okay, here we are in Romans 9, typical Presbyterians. Well, listen, I've never preached through Romans 9 uh, in a series in this church in 10 years, but we're in Romans, and we have been for the last couple of years, and now we're in Romans 9. And so uh, this morning, we come to a passage which is a very challenging passage, um, but one that is so rich and that gives us a big view of God rather than the small one. The problem with today in our secular age Uh, is that we have a big view of man and a very small view of God, and we sit in judgment on him rather than he sitting in judgment on us. This is the way secular man uh, conceives of things, and it's been this way for all of time, but especially since the Enlightenment and the French Revolution, which I've been learning a lot about here recently. But let's look at Romans 9 together, and we're going to read this morning uh, verses 19 uh, through verse 29, Um, And I'm going to say by way of introduction that I will be dealing with the latter part of this section, God willing, next time, as we only have limited time this morning to deal with the first part of this. So please stand with me uh, for the reading of God's holy word, Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 19. Actually, I'm going to begin in verse 18. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills. And he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? 
But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call Beloved, And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom. And become like Gomorrah. Amen. Here ends the reading of God's word. Would you pray with me? Our Father, as we come to this glorious but challenging text of Scripture, we ask that you would teach us by your Spirit. Grant us understanding and illumination. And, O Lord, if we sit in arrogance as it concerns the doctrine of election, we pray that we would be humbled even this morning. And we pray, Lord, that if we have honest questions, that these questions would be answered by your grace, that we would cling evermore to Christ as our Lord and Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Dear ones, fixed within the human soul is a longing for something better, an aching for the sublime, a yearning for that which the world cannot give. It's an inner longing for the way things used to be, the way things used to be at creation, a longing for the garden paradise. Everyone is trying to create that oasis in this world, a utopia, as it were. Everyone has a longing for paradise the garden paradise, before sin entered the picture. Fallen humanity attempts to fill the void in their lives with idols. But the attempts to do this are always matter-of-factly fruitless. Indeed, every venture to fill the void with idols, anything besides God, makes the void that much bigger. Why? Because it's a God-sized void. It's a void that only He can fill. He made us for Himself. He fashioned us for Himself. And so it makes perfect sense that our, our happiness, our, ultimately our salvation, could only be found in Him. The triune God made us for Himself. He created us for His glory. And He made us for loving community with one another. Humanity was created for these things. And in the beginning, this was precisely the context. Indeed, life for our first parents in the Garden of Eden was truly idyllic. 
It was perfect in every way. Adam and Eve had perfect fellowship with God and each other in a pristine setting, the garden paradise. There was no sin. There was no pain. There was no bad news. There was no death. There was no threat of dangerous weather and wild animals and deadly disease. Imagine all the occupations that there wouldn't be in the garden paradise. This was an unspoiled setting, a a temple garden paradise where God and man lived together in perfect, unbroken fellowship. What a place. What a place. But all of that changed. All of that changed when Adam and Eve gave in to temptation and sinned against God. All of that changed when Adam and Eve rejected God's perfect covenant and embraced the lies of the evil one and came into covenant with the devil. All of this sin, it poisoned humanity. It poisoned the creation order. As a result, God expelled Adam and Eve from the garden paradise and cast them into what was an inhospitable environment with thorns and thistles, a wilderness east of Eden, which is where we've been living Ever since, humanity, apart from Christ, has been living separated from God and in a condition of spiritual death. The Apostle Paul, of course, describes fallen humanity's condition in the first three chapters of Romans. And if you've read the news lately, you will recognize that this is a good description of humanity. It's not a rosy description. Look with me if you have your Bibles open at chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 and verse 9. Of course, from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, we have a a long description of the universal depravity of man. But this is a really concentrated section where Paul describes, using Old Testament passages, the nature of fallen mankind. Uh, Chapter 3 and verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. Now, I want to pause here for a moment and say that chapters 9 through 11 of Romans is Paul trying to help the Jews understand that salvation is by grace alone and not by ethnic origins. It's not because they are Israelites or natural descendants of Abraham that they are saved, that they are right with God. Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The Jews had rejected the Messiah. And so Paul is trying to help them to understand because he loves them verses 1 through 5 of chapter 9, because he aches for them and he is in anguish over them. He wants them to understand that salvation is by grace and that they must look to the Savior and not to themselves for salvation. And so here he's trying to help the Jews to understand that their natural sinful condition is the same as non-Jews' natural sinful condition. What then, he writes, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. He goes on in the next two verses to write, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Dear ones, this is the Holy Spirit-inspired biblical description of fallen mankind, and it actually coincides with reality, with what we see and experience in our own experience and in the experience of others. It's because of mankind's unrighteousness that God's wrath is revealed from heaven, chapter 1, verse 18. Humanity is spiritually dead, not with a head cold, not with a spiritual head cold, but dead and thus unable and unwilling to obey God and to pursue Him. Some describe mankind's natural spiritual condition as one drowning at sea, desperate for someone to throw them a life preserver. But this analogy assumes the drowning person's ability to stay afloat and to grab a life preserver. But this analogy is wrong. God's Word describes things very differently. According to the Scriptures, a better analogy of mankind's natural spiritual condition is not a drowning man in need of a life preserver, but as a dead man in need of a life-giving spirit. Dead and in need of sovereign grace. Sovereign grace. In his letter to the Ephesian church, the apostle tells the Christians who they once were before they were Christians, before they were united to Christ, and who they are now as a result, not of works, but of God's sheer mercy and grace. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1. The apostle writes, And you, Christians in Ephesus, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, There's this obsession with zombies these days. All these television shows and series and movies about the walking dead, about zombies, about the living dead. I don't understand it, but this is what our culture is obsessed with for some reason. And and here we really get a picture of the spiritually walking dead. Dead in trespasses and sins incapable of loving and serving and obeying God because of their spiritual deadness and yet walking in the passions of the flesh, the desires of the mind, and who are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
But then in verse 4, we have two words that lead off in verse 4 that so beautifully describe sovereign grace. Here is who they were, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you are saved. Notice with me that this does not say, but God, looking through the portals of time, seeing what lovely people you are and all the good works that you are doing and that faith that you will exercise chose you and with Christ and your good works together has made you right with God. That is not what we read. Nothing like it. We read that it's all of grace. It's all of divine mercy. It's all of His great love. Even when we were dead, even when we were, Romans 5, enemies of God and hostile to God, God showed us mercy. By grace you have been saved, verse 6, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He has saved us and He has saved us so that He can show us even more grace and more grace and more grace forever and ever. For by grace, verse 8 says, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Lest you think that faith is a work. We're being taught here that faith is a gift from God. Lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God's sovereignty doesn't remove meaning from human action and good works. It gives meaning to them. If not for God doing these things, He would not be God and there would be no meaning. And we would be right to embrace some kind of nihilism that has been embraced by, embraced by so many in the God is dead movement. You see, this is why I'm introducing my sermon on the doctrine of election this way. Because we need to be reminded, and I want us to understand the natural spiritual condition of mankind, spiritually dead, hostile to God, Romans 8, 7. And thus does not and cannot please God. He is not a spiritual drowning man. He is a dead man. He doesn't need a divine nudge in the right direction. He needs something much more radical. He needs to be brought from spiritual death to spiritual life in Christ, in the resurrected Christ. He needs reconciliation with God. He needs life-giving grace. He needs that which can only come through God's sovereign, undeserved mercy and grace in Christ. And this is what we've been learning, isn't it? In the first nine chapters of Romans, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, uh, to the glory of God alone. And for this to be true, sinful mankind must not and cannot contribute anything to his or her salvation. 
Not good works, not family heritage, not church membership, not religious sentimentality, nothing, nothing in us and nothing from us justifies us before God. It is all of grace, all of it received by faith, which is a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. Now, beloved, please hear this. Please hear this. If you believe what we have considered thus far this morning, about the nature of man and his fallen state, you should have no difficulty at all with the teaching of God's sovereignty and salvation, with his election, with his sovereign grace and election, the choosing of some guilty sinners for redemption while passing over others. Why? Because we all, both Jew and Gentile, eminently deserve the wages of our sins that is, eternal death and judgment. Indeed, if Romans 1 through 3 is true about humanity, that none is righteous, that God is holy, and that we have rebelled against Him, and we are separated from Him, and we as humanity are separated from God, God's holiness, our sinfulness, that great chasm there, if these things are true, and they are true, then we all deserve God's wrath and displeasure and can make no claims upon him. God is not indebted to us in any way. He does not owe us his gifts or favors in any way. Indeed, quite the contrary. It's not only that we have not merited God's love, we have actually demerited it. We're not neutral in this. We're not neutral players. We are We have demerited His grace. We owe God a debt too big to pay. This this is where Paul's countrymen, the Jews, had it all wrong. They believed that their ethnic origins and good works and spiritual privileges gave them a right to salvation and eternal life. They believed because they were descendants of Abraham that God's favor rested upon them no matter what. So in verses 6 through 18, Paul shows that salvation does not come through ethnicity or works, but through grace and promise. Through grace and promise. And the ultimate proof that God's salvation comes through grace and promise is the grace of divine election. God's sovereign prerogative to elect some unto salvation in Christ and to leave others in their rebellion. To punctuate this point, Paul points to the example of Isaac and Rebekah's twin sons, Jacob and Esau. Look with me at verses 10 through 13 of chapter 9. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing good either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Salvation is rooted in sovereign grace, not good works, not Jewish roots, or any other kind of ethnic heritage. Racism is all over the world. It always has been. And it's this idea that you are right 
and that you are superior because of the color of your skin or because of your ethnicity in some way. It's all over the world. It's, it's in every country. Different groups of people that believe they are superior. And there's some sense in which they believe they deserve God's favor because of their nationality. So this is not just something that applies to these first century Jews. It also applied to first century Gentiles who, who were putting hope in their own ethnicity. And 21st century people who think that because they are from a certain place or affiliated with a certain organization or whatever are right with God. But all of this is smashed to the ground. Because salvation is by grace. But next, Paul anticipates an objection from his Jewish friends in verse 14. Look at verse 14 with me. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? In other words, if God chooses to save Jacob but not Esau, is God unjust? Well, the answer is no, of course. By no means, Paul says. To even ask such a question, to question God's goodness and justice, borders on blasphemy. Paul quotes Exodus 33, 19, when God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. He then quotes Exodus 9, verse 16, and shows that it's part of God's purpose to harden Pharaoh's heart. Why? To show his power, to glorify his name. And this is not the hardening of a soft, pliable, and good heart, but the hardening of an already hard and unbelieving heart as an act of judgment for God's own divine purposes. You know, God works all things together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Amen? He works all things together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Romans 8, 28. In order for God to do this, He must be sovereign. And he must be one who can overrule evil for ultimate good. If he can't do those things, he is not God. And our religion is worthless. You see, as I've said many times, Romans 9 really is about God being God. And some people don't like that. Some people don't like God being God. They want to be God. They want to be the arbiters of morality. They want to be the one who... Uh, uh, judges God rather than to be judged by God and the truth. And so we come with all kinds of ways to replace Him and to sit in judgment upon Him. But God is being God when He is being sovereign. Divine election is simply God being God. If left on our own to save ourselves, there would be no hope for us. The big problem people have, essentially, I believe, is not with election. It's with total depravity. It's with mankind being in such a terrible spiritual state after the fall that he is not inclined towards God, but rather hostile to him and an enemy towards him, dead in transgressions and sins. The big group hug for humanity has been tried over and over and over again, but we just keep having world wars. We keep having the worst kinds of headlines. This idea that man is essentially good and goodness, and perhaps we should 
cast suspicion on God's goodness, but not on our own. This is the thinking of the evil one who has put his thoughts in the hearts of man. Divine election is God being God. If left on our own to save ourselves, there would be no hope for us because we would just remain in our sin. We would all be Pharaohs. We would all be Esau's. If not for the grace of God, if not for His mercy, if not for His sovereign grace, we would all be Pharaoh's and Esau's and living in Sodom and Gomorrah's. But God, because of the richness of His mercy and the greatness of His grace, set His love upon us even before the foundation of the world purchased our redemption in Christ and by his spirit and word gave us new life. Salvation is of the Lord. When the Lord saved me 32 years ago, it is true that I received Christ as my Lord and Savior, that I began to cling to him by grace through faith, that I began walking with him, And I turned from my sin and I gave my life to Christ. Yes, I did that. But the only reason I did that and was compelled to do that is by the grace of God. Because God himself set his love and affection upon me and sent his spirit into the world to to apply this gospel to me and to raise me up to new life. Apart from his grace, I would still be in my sin, still be living a rebellious life. It's all of grace. It's all of grace. And because I was saved by grace, I know I will not be cast off. The Lord has me and will never let me go. Because he who began a good work in me will be faithful to what? To complete it. Now, I hope you had your second cup of coffee this morning. Because these are the deep things of God. The high things which we will think on in a minute as too great for us even to fully grasp. But Paul writes at the end of this section in verse 18, God has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So so what happens next? Well, Paul anticipates yet another question from his detractors. He raises it in verse 19. Look there with me. It's a question that arises in many hearts. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist God's will? Have you ever asked this question? Perhaps you're asking it in your own heart right now. Perhaps this has arisen in your mind. If God has mercy on whomever he wills and hardens whomever he wills, and this is purposed even before the foundation of the world, then why does he still find fault? Who can resist the sovereign will of God? And let me just say this. The question can be asked humbly and sincerely with those grappling with the doctrine of election, a doctrine that sadly many just many pastors will just pass right over never deal with, or teach in a way that's completely distorted. And we know that Paul is teaching what he's teaching 
because of this question. It's something that Lloyd-Jones brings up, that we know that Paul is teaching divine election previous to verse 19, because in verse 19, he raises a question that would be asked in relation to divine election. And so we know that Paul is teaching that, and verse 19 is proof that Paul is teaching that because he's asking a question in response to it that would enter the hearts of of people. But the questioner that Paul is interacting with here is anything but humble. No, this particular questioner is arrogant. His question, like the one in verse 14, is accusatory. It disregards the depraved spiritual condition of humanity, and in particular, the Jews. For these are his Jewish countrymen who he is speaking to. This questioner is questioning the righteousness of God. He did so earlier. Is there injustice with God? He's questioning the fairness of God. The questioner is essentially intimating that if sovereign grace and election is true, then God should find fault with no one. Since no one can resist the sovereign will of God, then God should not condemn anyone. And how do we know that Paul is arguing with a prideful, irreverent, and self-righteous Israelite? Well, his answer gives it away. Look there with me. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God. If someone came to me in a pastoral moment and said, Pastor, I've got just a couple of questions about this difficult doctrine from Romans 9. Could you please speak with me? My response would not be, who are you to talk back to God? Away with you. I mean, really. I have never done that. Paul Paul here responds this way because he knows where this question is coming from. It's coming from a place of arrogance and self-righteousness and accusing God. And that does dwell in the hearts of man. Paul's response is firm and it puts man in his place. The creature has no right to speak to his sovereign God and maker in such an irreverent and disrespectful manner especially a creature who is sinful and guilty before God. Who are you, O man, to speak against God, many translations put it. Sometimes the attitude and assumptions behind a question make the question itself inappropriate and unbefitting. Robert Haldane, the great Scottish theologian, comments that, quote, it is a thing most preposterous for such a creature as man to question the procedure of God. Paul is saying here, remember your place, O man. Remember that God is your sovereign maker. Remember that he is all wise, that he is perfect in all of his ways. Remember that you are a creature and a sinner with a finite mind. Remember that God's ways are inscrutable. Remember that his ways are higher than your ways and his thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Remember that he is holy and just in all that he is and all that he does. Remember, O man. So who are you, O man, to answer back to God? This answer, it echoes, does it not, God's questions in the final chapters of Job. Do you remember those? 
the final chapters of Job. Job's three so-called friends come to comfort him. And their own words of so-called comfort aren't comforting at all. But then Job becomes discontent in his own heart. At the beginning of Job, he, he goes through this terrible uh, tribulation ordained by God. And he, he tears his clothes. He puts on sackcloth, sackcloth. He throws himself in the dust. And he says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away what? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But by the end of Job, he's become unsettled and discontent, and he begins to speak to God in a, in a disrespectful and irreverent way. And so God responds in chapter 38, verses 1 through 7, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of glory shouted for joy. Do you remember... Job's response to this line of questioning, which goes over a couple of chapters, he put his hand over his mouth. He put his hand over his mouth. These questions are essentially asking, will you irreverently question the creator of the universe? Will you question your maker? Will you question God as if you are morally superior to him? You know, this is... Isn't it the, what the devil did at the beginning in the garden? Tempting Eve to believe the lie of the devil rather than the truth of God? Did God really say? The serpent said, did God really say? And so Eve began to doubt the goodness of God, thinking that God was withholding Something good from her that she did not already have. And so she covenants along with Adam with the evil one who would bring destruction rather than to stay with the God who loved them perfectly. And it's what we have seen on repeat since the fall of mankind. The world is a dark place and we have categories for it as Christian believers. This is the kind of arrogance that Paul answers here. And it's why he employs, furthermore, the potter and the clay analogy. Look with me at verses 19 through 21. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Now, some will instantly take offense at this analogy, essentially viewing it as comparing human worth to a lump of clay. But that's wrong. The apostle uses this illustration, as it's used in various parts of the Old Testament, as we will see, 
to reinforce that God is sovereign over sinful, fallen humanity and has the right to show mercy to some and to withhold it from others. He has the right, the prerogative, as sovereign God to save some sinners and to pass over others. The analogy does not teach that humanity is a worthless lump of clay. Far from it. The late John Murray explains it this way, quote, He is using an analogy, and the meaning is simply that in the realm of his government... God has the intrinsic right to deal with men as the, as the potter in the sphere of his occupation, deals with the clay. But the kind of differentiation is as great as is the difference between God and the potter on the one hand and between men and clay on the other, end quote. As I mentioned earlier, this isn't the first time this comparison has been made. Paul's Jewish readers would have known this. In Isaiah 29 and verse 16, it says, You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker? He did not make me or the thing formed say of him who formed it. He has not understanding. You see, this is where Paul grabbed this illustration, this analogy. Again, in Isaiah 45, 9, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? This is like the, the analogy of, 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 of uh, humanity and, and those who are rebelling against God being like grasshoppers in God's presence. The analogy is supposed to reinforce that God is God and we are not. And in Isaiah 64, 8, it says, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. And then finally, in Jeremiah 18, verses 1 through 6, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah says, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. And so these verses capture something of what our text for this morning is teaching us. Look with me again at verses 21 through 24. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Here, beloved, we are once again confronted with a big God theology. Here we are taught that our sovereign God, according to His will and good pleasure and eternal purpose, makes known the riches of His glory to vessels of mercy and makes known His just wrath to vessels of wrath. And some will reject this. They will object to this. They will say, how can man be responsible then? 
How can man be held accountable for his sin if God's sovereignty bears out in this way? And this is where an essential point needs to be emphasized this morning. God's sovereignty never eliminates or diminishes human responsibility. God's sovereignty never eliminates or diminishes human responsibility. This is why you need your second cup of coffee, maybe a third. The two doctrines of God's sovereignty and human responsibility are taught everywhere in Scripture. Everywhere. Our sin and God's judgment is not a legal fiction. God's sovereignty and human responsibility is taught everywhere. It's what's, what theologians call an antinomy. A-N-T-I-N-O-M-Y, antinomy. That is, two truths that appear on the surface to be contradictory, but in and of themselves are reasonable. The fact is, these truths run side by side everywhere in the Bible, and we, with our finite knowledge and limited understanding, are unable to fully comprehend how these two things coincide. But they do. And nowhere is this more true and clear than at the cross. At the cross on Calvary. Look with me in your Bibles at Acts chapter 2 and at Peter's famous Pentecost sermon. And it's with this that we will close this morning. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. Here's the Apostle Peter who, not too long before this, was denying Christ. Of course, before that, he was saying, I will go with you anywhere, Lord. I will die with you. I will die for you. And then when the pressure came, he denied Christ three times. But then by God's grace, he repented. He was filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And he stood up before all of Christ's enemies and his enemies to preach the good news of Jesus Christ, but he does so very boldly and courageously, as we will see. But it's what he says here that reinforces this point that God is sovereign and yet man is responsible. Acts 2, beginning in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him, In your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Underline these words, if you write in your Bibles, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. We know that it was God's definite plan to send His Son into the world to die for sinners because from day one, this plan was in place. Before the foundation of the world, this plan was put in place. And the whole temple system was designed and organized to anticipate His coming All the promises, all the prophecies, all the types, all the shadows of the Old Testament are pointing to Christ. Of course, it was a part of God's plan to send His Son. But this did not remove the responsibility of man. 
Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan of foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So which is it? Did God sovereignly purpose the death of Christ or did man wickedly crucify him? Answer, yes. Is God sovereign or is man responsible for his sin against God? Once again, the answer is yes. These two truths run side by side all throughout the Scriptures. Dear ones, it's precisely because of Jesus' atoning death on the cross that we have such a glorious magnification of the love of God for sinners, as well as reinforces the price that needed to be paid for our redemption. Election doesn't remove the need for the work of Christ. It guarantees the work of Christ for sinners. God's sovereign, electing grace does not make Christ's life, death, and resurrection unnecessary. We couldn't be redeemed without Him and without His saving work on our behalf. You see, He is the only one who can make right what went so wrong in the Garden of Eden. He is the only one who can save us from what our sins deserve. As fully God and fully man, He is the only one who can free us from the clutches of Satan and free us from the bondage and idolatry of sin. He is the only one who can reconcile us to God and lead us from this thorny wilderness to the promised land. He's the only one. Christ. Many may dispute these things about the sovereignty of God, but what do you say about Christ? Who came and said, Father, I've come for those whom you have given me, and from those who you have given me, I will never cast out, and I will raise up on the last day, John 6. What do we say of Christ and His words? That the Father has hidden these things from the wise, but has revealed them to the foolish. You see, Christ came not for the righteous, that is those who believe they are righteous on their own, but for sinners. In Ephesians chapter 1, we have all these things so beautifully knit together in one beautiful Greek run-on sentence. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Christ we have redemption through His blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. 
Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Do you see this refrain? We are saved to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, that we might be holy, that we might be his beloved. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, once again, to the praise of his glory. It's wonderful to read passages like this out loud, to hear the resounding truths to the praise of his glory. This is why he has done these things to guarantee our salvation. For if left to ourselves, we would all be doomed. If left to ourselves, we would remain in that spiritual death and under God's wrath where we once were with the rest of mankind. Dear Christian, all that you possess by virtue of your union with Christ is by Sheer grace. It is grace, God's grace in Christ that has saved you. It is God's grace in Christ that will keep you and guard you and protect you. It is God's grace in Christ that will bring you home. That is the grace that we sing about. The grace that we sing about is not the grace of salvation by cooperation. God gives me a little grace. I give a little effort and I hope for the best. That's the kind of belief system that so many possess. And it's not biblical. And it's not comforting. But this is, this is salvation is by grace alone. It's not by good works. It's not through family heritage. It's not through theological astuteness. It's not through denominational affiliation. It's not through church membership. Salvation is all of grace, purposed by the Father before time, accomplished in Christ in time, and applied by the Holy Spirit to our lives for all time. And so we must rely on nothing else. We must make no other plea. My hope is in God's sovereign grace and that Jesus died for me. Beloved, it's the sovereign grace in Christ that will never let you go. It's His sovereign grace in Christ that will make you more than conquerors in the the face of life's trials and tragedies and tribulation. It's this sovereign grace in Christ that will fuel your worship and renew your minds and compel you to live with grateful and growing obedience to God's commands. It's, It's this grace in Christ, this sovereign grace in Christ that will finally lead you to glory. And you may be sitting here this morning and thinking, Pastor, I do not know this grace. I don't know this grace. Well, if that's you, and you continue at this moment to have this God-sized void in your life and unfulfilled longings that you can't even understand, the word for you this morning is receive Christ 
as your Lord and Savior. Come to Christ. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you forgiveness. I will give you mercy. I will give you grace. And as you walk through that door, which on the front side says, come to me, all you sinners, come to me and find forgiveness and mercy and grace and rest forever and ever. And you come to Christ by his grace because he has worked in you by his spirit and you walk through that door as it were and you look up on the other side of that door, as I've mentioned before, it says, welcome you who have been chosen before the foundation of the world. These things are mysterious. These things we cannot fully understand. But we know for grace to be grace, these things must be true, and they are true, for God's Word clearly teaches them. And so by God's sovereign grace, dear one, repent and believe in Christ right now. Give not another moment where you are separated from God under His wrath and on the road to eternal perdition. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. He receives you. Come to Christ and be reconciled to God through his blood. You were made for God's glory. You will never find true life or paradise apart from him. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this text. A text which shows your bigness and our smallness. Your glory and our sin your provision and our need. We thank you, O God, that you are a sovereign God and you do not leave us all to perish in our sin, but by your grace have set your love and affection upon us that we would believe the gospel, be united to Christ, and be brought back into the garden, a better garden, a new heavens and a new earth that we can never be cast out of. O Lord, we pray that this would compel us to sing and to live for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.